This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 30 Chapter 17 The Spirit of America I suggest that diplomatists of the internationalist school should spend some of their money on staging farces and comedies of cross-purposes, founded on the curious and prevalent idea that England and America have the same language. I know, of course, that we both inherit the glorious tongue of Shakespeare, not to mention the tune of the musical glasses, but there have been moments when I thought that if we spoke Greek and they spoke Latin, we might understand each other better for greek and latin are at least fixed while american at least is still very fluid i do not know the american language and therefore i do not claim to distinguish between the american language and the american slang but i know that highly theatrical developments might follow on taking the words of part of the english slang or the english language i have already given the example of calling a person a regular guy which in the States is a graceful expression of respect and esteem, but which on the stage, properly handled, might surely lead the way towards a divorce or duel or something lively. Sometimes coincidence merely clinches a mistake, as it so often clinches a misprint. Every proofreader knows that the worst misprint is not that which makes nonsense, but that which makes sense. Not that which is obviously wrong, but that which is hideously right. He who has essayed to write, he got the book, and has found it rendered mysteriously as he got the boob, is pensively resigned. It is when it is rendered quite lucidly as he got the boot, that he is moved to a more passionate mood of regret. I have had conversations in which this sort of accident would have wholly misled me, if another accident had not come to the rescue. An American friend of mine was telling me of his adventures as a cinema producer down in the southwest where real Indians were procurable. He said that certain Indians were very bad actors. It passed for me as a very ordinary remark on a very ordinary or natural deficiency. It would hardly seem a crushing criticism to say that some wild Arab chieftain was not very good at imitating a farmyard or that the Grand Lama of Tibet was rather clumsy at making paper boats. But the remark might be natural in a man travelling in a paper boat or touring with an invisible farmyard for his menagerie. As my friend was a cinema producer, I supposed he meant that the Indians were bad cinema actors. But the phrase has really a high and austere moral meaning, which my levity had wholly missed. A bad actor means a man whose actions are bad or morally reprehensible. So that I might have embraced the Red Indian who was dripping with gore or covered with atrocious crimes, imagining there was nothing the matter with him beyond a mistaken choice of the theatrical profession. Surely there are here the elements of a play, not to mention a cinema play. Surely a New England village maiden might find herself among the wigwams in the power of the formidable and fiendish little blue bison, merely through her mistaken sympathy with his financial failure as a film star.
the notion gives me glimpses of all sorts of dissolving views of primeval forests and flamboyant theatres but this impulse of irrelevant theatrical production must be curbed there is one example however of this complication of language actually used in contrary senses about which the same figure can be used to illustrate a more serious fact suppose that in such an international interlude an english girl and an american girl are talking about the fiance of the former who is coming to call the english girl will be haughty and aristocratic on the stage the american girl will of course have short hair and skirts and will be cynical americans being more completely free from cynicism than any people in the world it is the great glory of americans that they are not cynical for that matter english aristocrats are hardly ever haughty they understand the game much better than that but on the stage anyhow the american girl may say referring to her friend's fiance with a cynical wave of the cigarette i suppose he's bound to come and see you and at this the blue blood of the vir de vir will boil over the english lady will be deeply wounded and insulted at the suggestion that her lover only comes to see her because he is forced to do so a staggering stage quarrel will then ensue and things will go from bad to worse until the arrival of an interpreter who can talk both english and american he stands between the two ladies waving two pocket dictionaries and explains the error on which the quarrel turns it is very simple like the seed of all tragedies in english he is bound to come and see you means that he is obliged or constrained to come and see you in america it does not in america it means that he is bent on coming to see you that he is irrevocably resolved to do so and will surmount any obstacle to do it the two young ladies will then embrace as the curtain falls now when i was lecturing in america i was often told in a radiant and congratulatory manner that such and such a person was bound to come and hear me lecture it seemed a very cruel form of conscription and i could not understand what authority could have made it compulsory in the course of discovering my error however i thought i began to understand certain american ideas and instincts that lie behind this american idiom for as i have urged before and shall often urge again the road to international friendship is through really understanding jokes it is in a sense through taking jokes seriously it is quite legitimate to laugh at a man who walks down the street in three white hats and green dressing-gown because he is unfamiliar but after all the man has some reason for what he does and until we know the reason we do not understand the story or even understand the joke so the outlander will always seem outlandish in costume or custom but serious relations depend on our getting beyond the fact of difference to the things wherein it differs a good symbolical figure for all this may be found among the people who say perhaps with a self-revealing simplicity that they are bound to go to a lecture if i were asked for a single symbolic figure summing up the whole of what seems eccentric and interesting about america to an englishman i should be satisfied to select that one lady who complained of mr asquith's lecture and wanted her money back i do not mean that she was typically american in complaining far from it i for one have a great and guilty knowledge of all that amiable american audiences will endure without complaint i do not mean that she was typically american in wanting her money 
Quite the contrary, that sort of American spends money rather than hoards it, and when we convict them of vulgarity, we acquit them of avarice. Where she was typically American, summing up a truth individual and indescribable in any other way, is that she used these words, I've risen from a sick bed to come and hear her, and I want my money back. The element in that which really amuses an Englishman is precisely the element which, properly analyzed, ought to make him admire an American. But my point is that only by going through the amusement can he reach the admiration. The amusement is the vision of a tragic sacrifice for what is avowedly a rather trivial object. Mrs. Asquith is a candid lady of considerable humor, and I feel sure she does not regard the experience of hearing her read her diary as an ecstasy for which the sick should thus suffer martyrdom. She also is English, and had no other claim but to amuse Americans, and possibly to be amused by them. This being so, it is rather as if somebody said, I have risked my life in fire and pestilence to find my way to the music hall, or I have fasted forty days in the wilderness, sustained by the hope of seeing Totty Toddles do her new dance. And there is something rather more subtle involved here. There is something in an Englishman which would make him feel faintly ashamed of saying that he had fasted to hear Totty Toddles, or risen from a sick bed to hear Mrs. Asquith. He would feel that it was undignified to confess that he had wanted mere amusement so much, and perhaps that he had wanted anything so much. He would not like, so to speak, to be seen rushing down the street after Toddy Toddles, or after Mrs. Asquith, or perhaps after anybody. But there is something in it distinct from mere embarrassment and admitting enthusiasm. He might admit the enthusiasm if the object seemed to justify it. He might perfectly well be serious about a serious thing. But he cannot understand a person being proud of serious sacrifices for what is not a serious thing. He does not like to admit that a little thing can excite him, that he can lose his breath in running, or lose his balance in reaching, after something that might be called silly. Now that is where the American is fundamentally different. To him the enthusiasm itself is meritorious. To him the excitement itself is dignified. He counts it a part of his manhood to fast or fight or rise from a bed of sickness for something or possibly for anything. His ideal is not to be a lock that only a worthy key can open, but a live wire that anything can touch and anybody can use. In a word, there is a difference in the very definition of virility and therefore of virtue. A live wire is not only active, it is also sensitive. Thus sensibility becomes actually a part of virility. Something more is involved than the vulgar simplification of the American as the irresistible force and the Englishman as the immovable post. As a fact, those who speak of such things nowadays generally mean by something irresistible, something simply immovable, or at least something unalterable, motionless, even in motion, like a cannonball, for a cannonball is as dead as a cannon. Prussian militarism was praised in that way until it met a French force of about half its size on the banks of the Marne. But that is not what an American means by energy. That sort of Prussian energy is only monotony without repose. 
American energy is not a soulless machine, for it is the whole point that he puts his soul into it. It is a very small box for so big a thing, but it is not an empty box. But the point is that he is not only proud of his energy, he is proud of his excitement. He is not ashamed of his emotion, of the fire, or even the tear in his manly eye, when he tells you that the great wheel of his machine breaks four billion butterflies an hour. That is the point about American sport, that it is not the least sportive. It is because it is not very sportive that we sometimes say it is not very sporting. It has the vices of a religion. It has all the paradox of original sin in the service of aboriginal faith. It is sometimes untruthful because it is sincere. It is sometimes treacherous because it is loyal. Men lie and cheat for it as they lied for their lords in a feudal conspiracy, or cheated for their chieftains in a highland feud. We may say that the vassal readily committed treason, but it is equally true that he readily endured torture. So does the American athlete endure torture. Not only the self-sacrifice, but the solemnity of the American athlete is like that of the American Indian. The athletes in the States have the attitude of the athletes among the Spartans, the great historical nation without a sense of humor. They suffer an ascetic regime not to be matched in any monasticism and hardly in any militarism. If any tradition of these things remains in a saner age, they will probably be remembered as a mysterious religious order of fakirs or dancing dervishes who shaved their heads and fasted in honor of Hercules or Castor and Pollux. And that is really the spiritual atmosphere, though the gods have vanished, and the religion is subconscious and therefore irrational. For the problem of the modern world is that it has continued to be religious when it has ceased to be rational. Americans really would starve to win a coconut shy. They would fast or bleed to win a race of paper boats on a pond. They would rise from a sick bed to listen to Mrs. Asquith. But it is the real reason that interests me here. It is certainly not that Americans are so stupid as not to know that coconuts are only coconuts, and that paper boats only made of paper. Americans are, on an average, rather more intelligent than Englishmen, and they are well aware that Hercules is a myth, and that Mrs. Asquith is something of a mythologist. It is not that they do not know that the object is small in itself. It is that they do really believe that the enthusiasm is great in itself. They admire people for being impressionable. They admire people for being excited. An American so struggling for some disproportionate trifle, like one of my lectures, really feels in a mystical way that he is right, because it is his whole morality to be keen. So long as he wants something very much, whatever it is, he feels he has his conscience behind him, and the common sentiment of society behind him, and God and the whole universe behind him. Wedged on one leg in a hot crowd at a trivial lecture, he has self-respect. His dignity is at rest. This is what he means when he says he is bound to come to the lecture. Now the Englishman is fond of occasional larks, but these things are not larks, nor are they occasional. 
It is the essential of the Englishman's lark that he should think it a lark, and he should laugh at it even when he does it. Being English myself, I like it, but being English myself, I know it is connected with weakness as well as merits. In its irony there is condescension, and therefore embarrassment. This patronage is allied to the patron, and the patron is allied to the aristocratic tradition of society. The larks are a variant of laziness because of leisure, and the leisure is a variant of the security and even supremacy of the gentleman. When an undergraduate at Oxford smashes half a hundred windows, he is well aware that the incident is merely a trifle. He can be trusted to explain to his parents and guardians that it was merely a trifle. He does not say, even in the American sense, that he was bound to smash the windows. He does not say that he had risen from a sick bed to smash the windows. He does not especially think he has risen at all. He knows he has descended, though with delight, like one diving or sliding down the banisters, to something flat and farcical and full of the English taste for the bathos. He has collapsed into something entirely commonplace, though the owners of the windows may possibly not think so. This rather indescribable element runs through a hundred English things, as in the love of bathos shown even in the sound of proper names, so that even the yearning lover in a lyric yearns for somebody named Sally rather than Salome, and for a place called Wapping rather than a place called Westermain. Even in the relapse into rowdiness there is a sort of relapse into comfort. There is also what is so large a part of comfort, carelessness. The undergraduate breaks windows because he does not care about windows, not because he does care about more fresh air, like a hygienist, or about more light, like a German poet. Still less does he heroically smash a hundred windows because they come between him and the voice of Mrs. Asquith. But least of all does he do it, because he seriously prides himself on the energy apart from its aim and on the will-power that carries it through. He is not bound to smash the windows, even in the sense of being bent upon it. He is not bound at all, but rather relaxed, and his violence is not only a relaxation, but a laxity. Finally, this is shown in the fact that he only smashes windows when he is in a mood to smash windows, when some fortunate conjunction of stars and all the tints and nuances of nature whisper to him that it would be well to smash windows. But the American is always ready at any moment to waste his energies on the wider and more suicidal course of going to lectures. And this is because to him such excitement is not a mood but a moral ideal. As I note in another connection, much of the English mystery would be clear to Americans if they understood the word mood. Englishmen are very moody, especially when they smash windows. But I doubt if many Americans understand exactly what we mean by the mood, especially the passive mood. It is only by trying to get some notion of all this that an Englishman can enjoy the final crown and fruit of all international friendship, which is really liking an American to be American. If we only think that parts of him are excellent because parts of him are English, it would be far more sensible to stop at home and possibly enjoy the society of a whole complete Englishman. But anybody who does understand this can take the same pleasure in an American being American that he does in a thunderbolt being swift and a barometer being sensitive. He can see that a vivid sensibility and vigilance 
really radiate outwards through all the ramifications of machinery and even materialism. You can see that the American uses his great practical powers upon very small provocation. But he can also see that there is a kind of sense of honor, like that of a duelist, in his readiness to be provoked. Indeed, there is some parallel between the American man of action, however vulgar his aims, and the old feudal idea of the gentleman with a sword at his side. The gentleman may have been proud of being strong or sturdy. He may too often have been proud of being thick-headed. But he was not proud of being thick-skinned. On the contrary, he was proud of being thin-skinned. He was also seriously thought that sensitiveness was a part of masculinity. It may also be very absurd to read of two Irish gentlemen trying to kill each other for trifles, or of two Irish-American millionaires trying to ruin each other for trash. But the very pettiness of the pretext, and even the purpose, illustrates the same conception, which may be called the virtue of excitability. And it is really this, and not any rubbish about iron willpower and masterful mentality, that redeems with romance their clockwork cosmos in its industrial ideals. Being a live wire does not mean that the nerves should be like wires, but rather that the very wires should be like nerves. Another approximation to the truth would be to say that an American is really not ashamed of curiosity. It is not so simple as it looks. Men will carry off curiosity with various kinds of laughter and bravado, just as they will carry off drunkenness or bankruptcy. But very few people are really proud of lying on a doorstep, and very few people are really proud of longing to look through a keyhole. I do not speak of looking through it, which involves questions of honor and self-control. But few people feel that even the desire is dignified. Now I fancy the American, at least by comparison with the Englishman, does feel that his curiosity is consistent with his dignity, because dignity is consistent with vivacity. He feels it is not merely the curiosity of Paul Pry, but the curiosity of Christopher Columbus. He is not a spy, but an explorer, and he feels his greatness rather grow with his refusal to turn back, as a traveller might feel taller and taller as he neared the source of the Nile or the Northwest Passage. Many an Englishman has had that feeling about discoveries in dark continents, but he does not often have it about discoveries in daily life. The one type does believe in the indignity, and the other in the dignity of the detective. It has nothing to do with ethics in the mere external sense. It involves no particular comparison in practical morals and manners. It is something in the whole poise and posture of the self, of the way a man carries himself. For men are not only affected by what they are, but still more, when they are fools, by what they think they are, and when they are wise, by what they wish to be. There are truths that have almost become untrue by becoming untruthful. There are statements so often stale and insincere that one hesitates to use them, even when they stand for something more subtle. This point about curiosity is not the conventional complaint against the American interviewer. It is not the ordinary joke against the American child. And in the same way I feel a danger of it being identified with the cant about a young nation, if I say that it has some of the attractions, not of American childhood, but of real childhood. There is some truth in the tradition that the children of wealthy Americans tend to be too precocious and luxurious. 
but there is a sense in which we can really say that if the children are like adults the adults are like children and that sense is in the very best sense of childhood it is something which the modern world does not understand it is something that modern americans do not understand even when they possess it but i think they do possess it the devil can quote scripture for his purpose and the text of scripture which he now most commonly quotes is the kingdom of heaven is within you that text has been the stay and support of more pharisees and prigs and self-righteous spiritual bullies than all the dogmas in creation it has served to identify self-satisfaction with the peace that passes all understanding and the text to be quoted in answer to it is that which declares that no man can receive the kingdom except as a little child what we are to have inside is the childlike spirit but the childlike spirit is not entirely concerned about what is inside it is the first mark of possessing it that one is interested in what is outside the most childlike thing about a child is his curiosity and his appetite and his power of wonder at the world we might almost say that the whole advantage of having the kingdom within is that we look for it somewhere else the end of section thirty chapter seventeen